This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Dr. Sanj Kakar, an orthopedic surgeon with a specialist interest in hand and wrist disorders at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Did you know the lifetime prevalence of generalized low back pain is estimated at 60 to 70% in industrialized countries? When you break this down further, dysfunction of the sacroiliac joint or SI joint is thought to cause between 15 to 30% of low back pain. So how do you determine the differences between the two and what can be done to treat SI joint pain? Joining us today to discuss this is Dr. William Cross, who is an associate professor within the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Welcome to the show, Woody. Thanks, Sanj. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad we finally found a time to meet up. So this is fantastic. It's always great when you can uh, interview one of your partners. And as you'll see, he's uh, so much more uh, intelligent than I am, especially in this area. So Woody, we're talking about low back pain, but we're also talking about SI joint pain, and that can be confusing. Can you sort of give us some pearls of how you deduce the difference between one versus the other? Sure. Number one, to start off, it is a challenge sometimes because the incidence of low back pain, as you pointed out, is huge. And there are so many causes of low back pain and the clinician's responsibility to try and find out what's the root cause. I spend probably a half hour or, or more trying to just get a history, look at the imaging, talk about the patients about how their back pain started to really get a good picture and sort of hone in on the potential causes. And majority of this, you know, has to be done with an extensive history and an exam to really pinpoint it. So there are a host of different processes which can lead to kind of this chronic low back pain picture. So you talk about the history and the physical exam. So what are the sort of salient points that you deduce when it comes to SI joint pain as opposed to low back pain? Are there certain types of pain, types of physical exams that can sort of hone in that area? I think, you know, as, as a lot of us with clinicians, when we get a history, we look for kind of code words and things that'll kind of help us pinpoint to how it started. And when we look at, you know, my practice that sees predominantly only SI joint pain, and they, they usually carry this diagnosis from somewhere else. And that's really kind of a benefit of our clinic. I had to probably look at the five real root causes of SI joint pain in my clinic. And number one is clearly idiopathic. We don't know why it started. It just happened like arthritis of the wrist or somewhere else. It just happens because of some degenerative condition. Other factors that I find out are talking about a postpartum history where, where patients have a pregnancy, have a delivery, and then their SI joints never come back together. So postpartum, it's a big one. And usually they can pinpoint it back to their pregnancy. Other ones are post-traumatic, a slip or a fall or a car accident or some other trauma where they can pinpoint that they picked up a suitcase in 2019 in September on the 5th. And ever since then, they've had this pain. It's never gone away. So that's kind of the post-traumatic. The other ones, you know, big are um, post-spine fusion surgery. And a lot of patients, when they have fusion surgery in their posterior spine, that gets fused down to L5 or fused down to S1. They have a huge force transfer in their back where all of that beautiful motion that used to occur in their lumbar spine is now fused with good benefit for whatever their particular problem was. However, that motion doesn't disappear. That motion simply gets transferred to the segment above typically and the segment below. And if you fuse down to five or S1, the joint below that is the SI joint. So it's seeing an inordinate amount of force that it doesn't typically see. And so those, a lot of my patients will have that type of force transfer down below. And that's something we work on to try and alleviate that pain. But those are probably the, the classic ones in my practice. And when we try and figure out which of those it is, they're all code words, an incident that did it. I was pregnant and it started. 
I was a runner and it just slowly came on after running. So a lot of different factors. So as you said, you have a specialty clinic that some of the patients have already been diagnosed with this. Now, if I'm in primary care and I see somebody who comes in with low back pain, you mm -hmm. gave us some great pearls there on their history. Mm -hmm. What about in a physical exam to ensure that these patients are appropriately coming to, for example, the SI joint clinic? Mm -hmm. The physical exam, what I tell every patient that comes here, and I have a lot of patients that, that do like to request you know, video visits or first time Zoom visits if they're from Virginia or Maine or Texas, and they want to do it. But the hardest part with SI joint disease is, is probably 80% of the diagnosis is a history and a physical exam. 20% is just the imaging analysis. And so it is absolutely critical to really talk to your patients, look at that history we just talked about. And then the physical exam is incredibly important. And in our clinic, I have essentially five core examination maneuvers that every patient gets. And I like to say you have to have three or more positive to carry the diagnosis of SI joint disease or pathology. I think the most reliable one in my hands is in the supine position, feeling the posterior superior iliac spine and pushing your finger into that dimple. And there are different names for it, PSIS distraction test or the Fortin finger test, but that's very reliable. The other one that's, that's not as reliable, very commonly talked about is the Faber examination, which is the flexion, abduction, and external rotation of the hip. So you essentially put your hip into a figure four position and push down on the leg and see if that exacerbates the pain in that PSIS sulcus. I've come up with a test that, that we do a lot here. I call it the Mayo SI joint test, but it's simply the combination of the PSIS sulcus tenderness in combination with the Faber. Those two when done together, magnify the amount of SI joint pain. And I like that test specifically because at patients, when they come back and see me at six months or a year post-op, they plainly recall going to tears on the bed when we do that test. And then after surgery or an intervention, you can do that and it doesn't hurt them anymore. The other ones that are commonly described as the Gainsland's test and the sacral thrust test, the compression test of the SI joint. So those are all completed and part of the repertoire of SI joint examination maneuvers, but point tenderness over the PSIS and the Faber examination. And then com combining those are probably my three favorite tests. I think it's also important to rule out other causes that you pick up during the physical exam. So any of those maneuvers that manifest as anterior pain over the hip socket, those are code words to you and me for hip pathology, anterior groin pain. So that points us in that direction. When we're moving the leg around, zingers sent down the leg, paresthesias, maybe it's a dural tension sign, nerve root uh, issue. So those can all be picked up during the physical exam and are important because uh, that leads us down maybe a different path to looking at other etiologies, low back pain, or another diagnosis masquerading as SI joint pain. But in fact, it's the hip or the back or some other issue. No, I mean, you make a great point there. That was what I was going to ask you, because there are other areas, especially when you're trying to flex up the hip. You know, if a patient has an arthritic hip and you're unable to do that, but the pain is coming from the hip and not the back. I mean, getting that diagnosis correct is so important in terms of the pathway that these patients go down. And also in terms of imaging, I mean, as you said, 80% of this is history and physical examination. In terms of imaging, what should uh, primary care colleagues be ordering, first of all, in their practice to help diagnose this? The core images in my clinic that every single patient gets when, I, when, they, when they see me are uh, five views of the pelvis. And those five views are just a standard AP pelvis view. 
And then I get special views called inlet and outlet views, which are different orthogonal views of the pelvis that really highlight the symmetry of the pelvis itself and also can help look directly at the SI joints. And then my uh, last two are called flamingo views or single leg stance views. And those patients stand on a single leg in the x-ray bay to look for pelvic ring instability. And mainly my postpartum patients will show some considerable anterior ring instability, which likely is leading to their SI joint pathology in the back. The other study that they get, which I wouldn't recommend as an initial screening exam, would be a CT scan of the pelvis, where I can critically look at the facet joints of the L4, L5 junction all the way down to the initial tuberosities. And I can see the hips, I can see the SI joints, I can see the discs, I can see the facets. I can really see a lot of the confounding variables that can masquerade as SI joint in that one study. I think that's a downstream study that should be ordered maybe when they come to get a more of a formal diagnosis, but certainly the screening studies could be those initial five views. And in some cases, we can also get the oblique views of the SI joint. They're similar to the Jude views where we use for acetabular fracture management, and they can help look right down the SI joint, but I don't use those routinely. It's mainly the five views and the CT scan. The other one that is important to get also is a lumbar spine MRI because that can also look for the foraminal or central stenosis above, which can be a masquerader of SI joint pathology. So all my patients typically have that done prior to seeing me. And uh, those causes of SI joint have usually been ruled out by the time they see me. But if they're not, I use the MRI scan to help guide uh, injection management, whether it's an L4, or L5 transforaminal epidural steroid injection or facet injections or the like. So those would be my core imaging suggestions. So clearly, uh, Woody, you've developed this specialty practice, but before, what led to this development of this practice? I mean, was this clinic up and running when you started? How did this develop over time? I came to Mayo Clinic about uh, a little over 12 years ago, and the SI joint at that point was just beginning to be recognized as a common pain generator. There were some people that more or less dabbled in the area, but there weren't really any definitive clinics, and certainly not at Mayo Clinic. And people that had diagnosed with SI joint pain here at Mayo were typically sent elsewhere to get this done. So there was clearly a void in the practice in this particular area. A couple of our colleagues were approached by some people who were interested and vendors that are interested in, you know, looking at their implants. And I think some of our spine team were are so busy that they contacted me because of my special interest in the pelvis. And I thought this is a pretty unique area to get involved with. And a lot of my patients had this post-traumatic and it was seemed very natural to enter into this area of SI joint. And that was, you know, 10 years ago. And here we are now, 10 years later, with this international SI joint clinic, which is just booming and it keeps growing and it's been fantastic. So fill the void. And it's one of those things being in the right place at the right time. And uh, it's been really professionally gratifying. And uh, we've been able to help uh, a lot of patients. Yeah, it's been, it's been great as one of your partners watching this uh, flourish and watching you grow as a, an international leader in this field. We joined both together at the same time, so it was over 12 years ago. So it's, it's amazing what can happen. So in terms of treatment now, I mean, we, we can talk about surgery, but my understanding is that there are other things that we can do before surgery. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I like to say when patients come and talk about SI joint disease, I said, I'm a surgeon. And I love to operate. I love to fix these. However, if we can fix your problem without surgery, I'm all in. 
And those are the non-operative measures which have to be exhausted for SI joint pain. And the mainstay for me for SI joint pathology is physical therapy to work on core strengthening and mobility exercises. So when you look at uh, all the other modalities in addition to physical therapy, there's a host of them. There's activity modification, anti-inflammatory pain medication, weight loss, nutrition management, SI joint belts, which are belts we give patients to help stabilize the pelvis and stabilize the sacrum in that pelvic girdle. There are injections that we can do. We do intraarticular steroid injections, diagnostic injections, and those can be done you know, three or up to four times per year if they give good benefit to the patients. In some cases, although being done rarer, are nerve ablations that pain medicine can do for the dorsal rami of the SI joint. Those are, are really the mainstays, and every one of those gets addressed with our patients to find out, you know, what have you done? Have you done this? Have you done that? And really, if they're just getting into this process, we say, you know, follow up with me in six months, eight months, 12 months, and let's give this a really good try. And if it fails, then fusion surgery is the end of the road treatment once all non-operative modalities have failed. So when you talk about injections, is that under ultrasound guidance? Is that under CT guidance? And in general, as you said, you really want to exhaust non-operative yeah. treatment. How, how successful is that? You know, it, it's variable and every patient has to, you know, give an injection or two a try. And I think it's critical to note that SI joint injections are number one, they're a challenging injection to do. The anatomy is challenging. Posterior osteophytes can prevent entry into the SI joint. So analysis of the CT and communication with your injection team, you know, they have to go cranial to this osteophyte or caudal to it to get entry into it with fluoroscopy or a CT guided injection. I really discourage ultrasound guided injections because I think they are certainly more challenging. And for me to interpret it in the clinic, looking at an ultrasound image is really challenging because it's such a dynamic study. With all of our patients that come to Mayo Clinic for an SI joint clinic evaluation, they get pre-scheduled for a fluoroscopic guided injection immediately following our appointment in the SI joint clinic. I do this routinely on every patient because of essentially quality control so that I can see the injection. I can see the injectate going into the SI joint. It's a very curvilinear line as the, as the injectate goes into the SI joint. And if I don't kind of see what I would call a kind of a quality injection with the injection going to the SI joint, I really order another one, which is a CT guided, which elevates, of course, the complexity of the, of the uh, injection. However, in my experience, the CT guide injection is 100% accurate. They can get the needle in the SI joint where it needs to go. Of course, it's a little bit more radiation. It's a little bit more planning and time on the patient. So it's more in-depth than the fluoroscopic. But our team here at Mayo Clinic is so gifted with injection management that we've had really good luck with fluoroscopically guided SI joint injections. As we talked about, the goal is to try and get patients better without surgery, but unfortunately, sometimes patients do need to proceed with surgery. Can you talk to us about your journey here? Because I understand that you sort of innovated in this area as well. Mm -hmm. When I first started, you know, being a, an orthopedic trauma surgeon in training, I've had you know, access and training to fuse joints all over the body. We use a principles-based approach to fuse, whether it's ankles or toes or fingers or the wrist or the shoulder or the knee or the hip. We use basic principles all over the body with very good success when they're well done. So when we are working with the SI joint, I try and apply those same principles to this joint as I would any other joint and really capitalizing on those principles. And the four principles that I have grown to use in all these is, is aggressive joint preparation, 
bone grafting, compression, and stability. And I think that, I mean, when you fuse the upper extremity, I'm a hundred percent sure you use those same principles. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so when I, when we do the SI joint, I follow those and I've kind of gone through a couple of different iterations of devices. And at Mayo Clinic, we see complications. We see, you know, surgery, it didn't go right the first time. And I've had the opportunity and benefit, I think, of meeting these patients and problem solving to fix their problems. And this device we innovated with the Mayo Clinic is built upon those principles. And when we see other implants that have loosened or have not undergone good ingrowth or there's no true fusion, we're able to employ the system we developed here to really enhance and, and use those principles to get a solid, robust arthrodesis or true fusion across the SI joint. We've been implanting the, the, our device here for the last five or six years, and it's gone really well. We're collecting some data that's uh, in the peer review process right now and should be hopefully released soon. Of course, I have to introduce the bias alert as, you know, one of the developers here with Mayo Clinic, but we've been really happy with it. Uh, seems to be a very aggressive approach to problems that haven't been well addressed at other places. So if we talk about the surgery, is it day surgery? What are the uh, post-operative restrictions and what have the outcomes been of this type of fusion surgery? Sure. Well, you can talk about what to expect with surgery. The vast majority of our patients are overnight observations. So they come in for, I see the patient the day before. The next day they go in for surgery. The surgery itself takes anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. Typically they get admitted overnight and they go home the next morning by 10 or 11. Patients that are a national, international, I usually ask to spend an extra two or three days in Rochester just to let their surgical site rest a little bit before they get on the plane or do any kind of long distance travel. A little bit different for bilaterals. So probably a third of my practice are bilateral SI joint fusion surgeries. And those patients are also same day or overnight observation patients, but they're usually on a walker for anywhere from two, three, or four weeks just to let their, their backsides rest a little bit before they do anything too aggressive. But by and large, they're the same type of pain uh, syndrome as the unilaterals with some moderate buttocks pain just from the surgical site insult, but that improves relatively quickly. Our results, when we pool the data for the last several years at Mayo Clinic, we looked at two-year outcomes. Our average pain scores were about a seven and were reduced to a two at the six-month and one-year outcomes. Again, the two is the tip of the bell curve. There are some patients that are sevens down to threes or fours, and there are some patients that are sevens that are down to zero. And it's hard to know and predict who's going to get to that zero. And of course, we, we always in orthopedics shoot for the home run. But in SI joint pathology, a lot of patients have multiple different pain generators, back arthritis, hip arthritis, previously operated on back, a three-time SI fusion that's just not working, and we, we step in to do it. So it's my hope to get everybody down to a zero. But I think in reality, you know, sometimes we're getting them down to that seven, down to a two or seven to a three. And for a lot of patients, that's a home run for them because that really allows them to restore their quality of life, engage in activities with their family, their grandchildren, their kids. So it's uh, been an extremely gratifying practice to get those types of patient outcomes. No, absolutely. And I'm sure a lot of these patients had been on uh, longstanding narcotics. And I'm sure even getting from a patient from a seven to a three has had a significant impact on their life of getting off this type of medication. Yep. No question. You know, the patients that are on pre-existing narcotics over 75 to hundred morphine milliequivalents, I try and get them down as much as possible. And I know that when we look at our data and, and look at the data and literature, patients that are on narcotics preoperatively tend to have reduced benefit 
postoperatively to a fusion surgery. So I really, really try to have my patients work with their local pain medicine providers to decrease their morphine equivalents to uh, something down towards 50 or less, if possible, knowing that, you know, the quality of life is critical. If, they, if you function, you know, that's a different story, but we really try and be aggressive in minimizing the amount of preoperative narcotics. Woody, any, uh, anything else that you'd want to cover that we haven't touched upon? No, I think this has been great. I think I have a, a saying that I love to tell all of my residents, and it's an old quote that the eye only sees what the mind knows. And I think it's critical that all providers out there don't forget about SI joint disease because you could be treating a patient for hip disease or nerve root impingement. And all along, it's the SI joint. And you inject here, you do this surgery, or you do this intervention. But all along, it's been the SI joint. So I love this podcast and the ability to raise awareness for such a common problem that when addressed, can help people. And we have interventions to help. We have uh, therapists that are brilliant at doing this. Uh, at Mayo Clinic, we have a wonderful team-based approach to address the SI joint with physical therapists, pain medicine specialists, interventional radiologists, spine surgeons, both neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. We have the whole crew here, and it's been a uh, really gratifying practice to get patients up here and help them out. We've been talking about sacroiliac joint dysfunction with Dr. William Cross. Thank you for your time, Woody. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy, and thank you for the privilege of your time. Thank you.